Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation 3. It's verses 14 through 22. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you uh, join with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word this morning, this, um, this rebuke, this counsel, but also the reward that you've offered to this lukewarm church in Laodicea, Lord. Let your word penetrate to our hearts that, um, Lord, our lives might be changed. Let us receive your word uh, to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. John Sedgwick served as a Union Army general during the Civil War. He was the highest-ranking Union officer to die in the Civil War. On May 9, 1864, Sedgwick led his men into the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. Confederate sharpshooters were about a thousand yards away from his position, and as you would expect, their shots caused members of his staff, his artillerymen, his soldiers, to duck and to take cover. But Sedgwick strode around in the open and was quoted as saying, What? Men dodging this way for single bullets? What will you do when they open fire across the entire firing line? Although ashamed, his men continued to flinch and take cover. And he said, why are you dodging like this? They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Legend has it that he never finished that sentence. In reality, it was just moments after he said that, that he was shot by a sniper under the left eye and died. Sedgwick had become complacent. Sedgwick was arrogant, even smug in his assurance that he couldn't be hit by these bullets. He had become indifferent to the damage a sniper's sniper's bullet would do to him and his men. Filled with the pride of of self-sufficiency and self-reliance, he needlessly threw his life away. 
Well, we'll see something similar in the letter to Laodicea today. We find the same thing. A church that is, is self-sufficient. They had become indifferent to the things of God, complacent to His ways, even independent of true reliance upon God, prideful, arrogant, even smug about their worldly success. And they equated their worldly success with spiritual success. But the reality is they were completely overdrawn on all of their accounts and about to go bankrupt. In their self-satisfaction, they didn't even know that they were staggering blindly about the spiritual battlefield with no armor, no protection, and no hope of eternal security. All the while, the enemy's bullets are whizzing past their heads. This is the last of the seven churches that we've been studying here for the last seven weeks, and this sermon will conclude our series. And it's really the last in that kind of counterclockwise circuit, if you recall, that John's letter here uh, went. It is interesting. It's the only church. It's the only church that receives no commendation from Jesus at all. Four of the churches receive both praise and rebuke, and two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, the two churches that were um, suffering persecution, those two received only praise. Even Sardis had a few who had not soiled their garments, spiritually speaking. But Laodicea stands alone. They have the ignominious honor of being the only church that had nothing for positive for Jesus to say. This is not what you want to be known for. In a way, it's kind of depressing to end our series on a note like this. Uh, family, we just got back from a, a trip to uh, Disney World last week, so maybe that's why I'm wishing for fairy tale endings. But it's just not here. You're not going to find it here. Th this is rough. I know your works, Jesus says, and not one of them, not one of them I approve of. They are all so useless to me, Jesus says, that I want you to spit you. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. But Jesus does not leave them without hope. He does discipline those he loves, and his discipline is for good. He disciplines so that we might be led into the joy of repentance and true life in him and with him. Maybe if one of General Sedgwick's men had tackled him to the ground, he would have made it, and the story would have ended differently. Well, I can tell you this. Jesus isn't going to let his beloved ruin themselves without taking them to the ground first. And that's what he does to the Laodiceans. And why is that? It's because, after all, he is the faithful witness. So let's look at the first point in our outlines, the faithful witness. As with each letter to the churches, John begins with the description of the true author of these letters. And usually that description is meant for that specific audience. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John portrays another aspect of Christ that applies to that specific church. So the two are always connected. Whatever John writes about Jesus has something to do with that church. And so that means we can learn something about the situation in Laodicea from how John describes Jesus. So let's look at these 
three ways in verse 14 that Jesus is described. First, we see Jesus is the amen. Well, amen means truth, certainty, affirmation. We say it at the end of a prayer to show our agreement and our affirmation with what has been prayed. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. They find their truth, certainty, and affirmation in Him. I think John MacArthur does a nice job here. He points out that God's promises of mercy, forgiveness loving kindness, new life today, the sure hope of eternal life tomorrow are all bound up. They're, all of them are bound up in, and fulfilled in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He is the amen because he confirmed all of God's promises. Not only is he the amen, he is also the faithful and true witness. Jesus has witnessed these Laodiceans. He's seen them. And as he said, I know your works. He has seen their complacency and self-satisfaction. He is, and he's faithful to bring a painful, it's this painful, but needed word to the Laodiceans. A mere mortal perhaps might have tried to find a, a, at least one positive thing to say to soften the blow. But he doesn't do that because he is faithful to deliver the message that is needed. And likewise, his words are true and are completely trustworthy because of who he is. Now, under the right circumstances, eyewitness testimony is very accurate. It's very accurate. But, but an eyewitness can be convinced that they saw things that they didn't see or that they didn't see things that they actually did see. So there's, there's actually experts. I did a little bit of research on this. There's actually experts around the whole kind of a industry of eyewitness testimony, so to speak. And these experts have developed tests for eyewitnesses and speak in terms of contaminated eyewitness testimony or how contaminated eyewitness testimony might be. For example, after picking someone up out of a, picking someone out of a lineup, um, the, the eyewitness is asked to give a confidence level, a confidence level. So eyewitness testimony is not perfect, but this, as we know, is not so. This is not so with Christ. His testimony is faithful and true because he is faithful and true. There is no contamination. There's no need to provide a confidence level with his testimony. It's 100% sure because he is perfect. And when he says to each of the seven churches, I know your works, it's with perfect knowledge. So we have Christ's perfect witness over against the Laodiceans' own self-assessment, which, to kind of borrow the terminology from these eyewitness experts is both highly contaminated and with a low degree of confidence. So Jesus is the amen. He's the faithful and true witness, but he is also, as we see, the beginning, the beginning of God's creation. Now, if you're like me, this might be a little confusing. At least the first time I read it, I got a little hung up. How could Jesus be the beginning of God's creation? He didn't start God didn't start creation with Jesus, right? We just talked about that this morning in the, in the Lord's Supper. As John 1.1 1, 1 makes clear, Jesus is eternally coexistent, right? He's eternally coexistent with the Father and the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, so then what does it mean? Well, John 1.3 holds the answer. All things were made through him. All things were made through Jesus. And without him was not anything, not anything made that was made. I love that. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the active cause behind God's creation. So here's how to think about it. He's the, the active cause. He's the origin of God's creation. The person that commenced, that began God's creation. That's what we mean. Everything in creation was made through him, and it began with him. He started it. That's what we're talking about here. The point for the Laodiceans is simply this. You think you're in control. You've got a lot of money. You're rich. You're wealthy. You're indifferent to me. But guess what? I'm still in control. And I have always been because I started creation. I'm the one who began it. I made you. I gave you your wealth. Let's get things straight. So in summary, we see a stark contrast between Jesus, who is faithful and can be trusted to the uttermost. Right? But Jesus excuse me, and the, La and the Laodiceans who are faithless. So we have the faithful, and now let's look at the faithless. An unfaithful church, point two in your outline, verses 15 and 16. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now when you hear lukewarm, of course you think of someone who isn't trying but maybe hasn't given up completely either, right? When you are lukewarm towards something, you have mixed feelings. Now, as one with a sense of humor that relies heavily upon uh, movie quotes and um, obscure pop culture references, um, I've been on the receiving end of lukewarm receptions to my jokes. So I know what that looks like. These, re these receptions are altogether enthusiastic, tepid, and, and at best indifferent. They are, to use a pop culture reference, meh. So well, look, at, look at what Jesus wishes here, though. He wishes that they were hot or cold. Now, I think some have been confused about what this means, hot or cold here. Um, they, they say that Jesus is saying that I wish that you would either embrace me with your whole heart or reject me with your whole heart. But I can't stand the in-between. I can't stand your indifference. I'm sorry, but I just don't think that interpretation holds water. And why is that? Let me ask you this question. Where have you read in Scripture that God says, I wish that you would reject me? Where have you read that? You haven't read that. It's because it's not there. 2 Peter 3.9 says that he does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. So you can't square that with an interpretation where Jesus is just so exasperated that he wishes that you just reject him. It doesn't work. So then what are we talking about? We're talking about usefulness. We're talking about usefulness. When you come in from the cold, maybe from shoveling the driveway or sledding, and I know those are distant memories. We haven't had any of that yet, and I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. Um, What's better, though, when you've come in from the cold like that than a hot cup of cocoa or a hot cup of coffee, right? That's useful. You're cold. You want a hot drink. It warms you up. Or when you're hot, what's better than a refreshing, tall glass of water? Cold, cold water, right? That's what you need. That's useful to you when you're hot. 
You want something cold. But imagine coming in from shoveling the driveway after a two-foot dump of snow and grabbing a coffee at room temperature. That's disgusting. It's gross. Or coming back from a walk from the hot afternoon sun and chugging down a tepid glass of water. Not refreshing. Not what you want. Not what you need. Not useful. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The Laodiceans weren't guilty so much of, of indifference, although they were, as for living lives that repulsed Jesus. Lives that weren't useful to him. They weren't doing anything for the kingdom. So satisfied with themselves. He says, I will spit them literally. What it says is, I will vomit them out of my mouth. Their pride and self-sufficiency made them useless to God. This is the fundamental sin. So behind their indifference, behind their self-sufficiency, behind their pride, was uselessness to God. This is the fundamental sin. And that made them, God, that made them useless to God and His kingdom. And so, of course, the next step for Jesus is to spit them out. I love what Os Oswald Chambers says here. He says, nothing is more distasteful Nothing is more distasteful to God than self-conceit. But before Jesus spits this church out of his mouth, he's going to give them one more opportunity. So let's look at our third, the third point in our outlines, the cure to unfaithfulness, verses 17 through 19. So this is where spending just a few minutes on some of the history and even the geography of Laodicea will help us understand this passage, I think, understand and get more out of this passage than we might otherwise. So first of all, Laodicea was actually known for its wealth. It was a very wealthy city. Um, 30 years prior to when John wrote this letter, and we believe he wrote it right around AD 90, so AD 60, AD 61, there was a massive earthquake that leveled the entire city. Okay, And they went ahead and rebuilt the city. Now, Rome offered to help them rebuild the city. I mean, this is a lot like when... U.S. cities suffer a disaster. I thought of um, Katrina and New Orleans, uh, but there's been many things since then. But, you know, U.S. city suffers a disaster. The federal government steps in, helps that city rebuild, helps that state kind of recover to where they were before. But in its wealth, listen to this, in its wealth, Laodicea turned down assistance from Rome and rebuilt the city completely on their own with their own money. And in fact, they built it better than before. They built a new sports stadium. They built, um, like, apparently some three beautiful arches at the entrance to the city. It was more elaborate than ever before. Can you imagine doing this? Can you imagine if an earthquake hit Denver and the federal government called up and said, hey, we want to help you, you know, rebuild the city. No, nah, we got it. We're good. That would never happen. But that's what they did. So how did they get so wealthy? Well, it was a major crossroads, okay? There was a north-south crossroad. Um, that went right through Laodicea, and there was an east-west kind of crossroad that went right through Laodicea. In fact, really the only reason the Laodicea existed to some degree was the fact that it lay at these crossroads. There wasn't any natural source of water there for them to be able to drink. So uh, because of this crossroads, it just sort of naturally became a place where people traded, where commerce took place. Eventually uh, it became a banking uh, center. Okay, so that's great background. Um, but here's the point. Do you see what, what has happened to them? They've confused their material wealth with spiritual wealth. They believe their earthly blessing is evidence of eternal blessing. 
But the problem, you might be going, well, the money's the problem. The problem's not the money. The problem's not their wealth. It was the self-sufficiency that it created in them. They thought they didn't need God. They thought they, they had it all under control. They were smug and indifferent. Sometimes in, in the business world, um, if you tune into that stuff at all, sometimes you'll hear CEOs or CFOs talk about building a quote-unquote fortress balance sheet. Okay, And the idea is that their business is secure from ruin because of how much extra money they're retaining and keeping at the bank. So we're going to build a fortress balance sheet so that no matter what happens to our business, we're going to be able to get through it. Right? In a similar way, the Laodiceans thought their wealth was security against spiritual ruin. Jesus says that, that they think about themselves, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Grant Osborne, I, one of the commentators I read, summarizes it well. He said this, the problem was the city had no perceived need for help from Rome and the church had no perceived need for help from God. And this is incredibly insightful, I think. With no external pressure from pagan persecution like Sardis saw, or Jewish persecution like Smyrna or Philadelphia, with no internal threat from heretical movements like Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira, None of that was taking place here. Instead, they had succumbed to their own affluent lifestyle. And they did not even know it. That's scary. But Jesus, the faithful and true witness, gives them the truth. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He uses these five different descriptors for them, and none of them are good. If someone is a miserable wretch, that's like really bad. In fact, I don't remember ever calling somebody a miserable wretch. That's how bad it is. It has such negative connotations. But that, that's what Jesus sees as fitting for their spiritual state. You're wretched. They're miserable. Become deeply afflicted by their spiritual sickness. But if there was ever a God, if there was ever a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and seven times 70 chances. It is our God. And so Christ offers this counsel in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself with the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see the beauty of Jesus' counsel here? You are spiritually poor. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire that so you may be rich. You are spiritually naked. I counsel you to buy white garments from me so that you may clothe yourself. You are spiritually blind. I counsel you to buy salve. For your eyes, to anoint your eyes that you may see. And there's a really rich double irony here. Okay? And it's that none of this, none of this can be bought. I counsel you to buy from me, is what he says, but how can it be bought? None of it can be bought. All of it is actually a gift that can be only received in humility and recognition of one's need. So the buying from Jesus, <laughs> this is the irony of it, the buying from Jesus 
is really a matter of receiving what he offers. It can't be bought. It can't be earned. It can only be received by recognizing one's need and turning in faith. In fact, the buying, there was a price. And the buying and the earning was done for us at the cross. That's where Jesus bought us gold that never perishes. White garments that convey to us his sinless perfection. And salve for our eyes that we might see for the first time ever eternal realities. Our role is to repent and just receive. Receive. Verse 19, Jesus says, To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Be zealous for the things of God and repent. Put aside your false security and wealth. Recognize the shame of your spiritual nakedness and put on my white robes of righteousness. Confess your spiritual blindness and I will give you sight for eternity. Give up your useless, self-sufficient, lukewarm ways and instead live a life of zealous joy. Zealous joy and love and repentance. All of this from a God who loves enough to discipline and reprove. It's very interesting, isn't it? Dwight Moody relates a story about uh, something that a a Scottish uh, uh, theologian told him, how in the highlands of Scotland, a sheep would often wander off into the rocks and, and get into places that they couldn't get out of. The grass on these mountains is very sweet, and the sheep like it. And they will jump down 10 or 12 feet, and then they can't jump back again. And the shepherd hears them bleeding in distress. And they may be there for days until they have eaten all the grass. All the grass is gone. The shepherd will wait until they are so faint that they cannot stand. And then the other shepherds will will put a rope around that shepherd, and, and he will go down. And over and pull that sheep up out of the jaws of death. And Moody asked, well, why don't they go down there when the sheep first goes down there? Why don't want you go get them right away? Ah, the theologian said, they are so very foolish that they would dash right over the precipice again and be killed if they did. And that is the way with men. They won't go back to God till they have no friends and have lost everything. If you are a wanderer, I tell you that the good shepherd will bring you back the moment you have given up trying to save yourself and are willing to let him save you his own way. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Wow. The Lord reproves who? Him whom he loves. And what's that like? It's like a father who disciplines a son or daughter in whom he delights. You hear that? He disciplines those in whom he loves and in whom he delights. He delights in you. And when you sense the Lord's hand heavy upon you, when you sense his discipline, Examine yourself, repent, and start putting that sin to death. Get after the hard work of it. But I would also say this, take heart. 
Take heart. He disciplines those he loves like a father, his child in whom he delights. That's wonderful, isn't it? Indeed, it is wonderful, and there's also a wonderful reward, point four in your outline. You know, relationship with Jesus is much more than zealousness and repentance. It comes with great reward, both today and tomorrow and forever. Verse 20 says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He stands at the door and knocks. And what happens if we open the door or when we open the door? He comes in and eats with us. Now, this is kind of a big deal. Okay? Jesus could have said, maybe to put it in uh, modern terms, I'll come in and we'll play cards. I'll come in and we'll hang out for a while. That'll be great. But he says, no, I want to come in and eat with you. Why is it a big deal when some, someone has you over to eat with them at their house? Why is that a big deal? Because it's intimate. It's intimate. You're coming into their home, eating their food, gathered at their table, sharing stories, opening your lives to one another. Sharing a meal is a highly effective way of making your neighbors, your friends, your family, your church family closer to you. It's very rich and sweet. So from the discipline of a loving God to the intimacy of eating a meal together. But the two really aren't so different. Okay, just hang with me one second. Go back up to verse 19. I want to show you something. Jesus says, he says, to those whom I love. Now, I read this, I don't know about you, but when I read this, when I read those whom I love, I read the word love like agape, agape love, which is the love that, that God has for his people. Okay? But the Greek here is not agape. The Greek here is actually philia, from where we get Philadelphia, which is what? The city of brotherly love. So what we're talking about here is more of a brotherly love than it is an agape kind of love. It means that his love comes with the fact that he wants to be with you, that he actually likes you. Jesus likes you. You may not like you. He likes you. His brotherly love for you leads him to the affectionate offer to dine with him. How affectionate, how intimate is that? He welcomes us as friends. Now, naturally, many of us read this verse and think of the offer of salvation. That is absolutely true. This verse has been used many times in the context of the offer of salvation. And for someone that hasn't put their faith in Christ, that's, abs- that's a- exactly what he's offering here. Okay, But for those who already know him, it's more than that. He's inviting us into greater intimacy with him. Knowledge of him, friendship, friendship with him, all of which leads to deepening trust, okay? Deepening trust. And where does that take us? Where does that deepening trust end? It's trust that overcomes fear. Trust that overcomes doubt. Trust that overcomes persistent sin. Trust that finds Jesus more attractive than anything else. Yes, eternal life awaits, but he wants intimate fellowship with us right now here today. Right now with us here today. Verse 21 and 22, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One commentator noted, for all the sorrows that characterize a Laodicean congregation, the prospect of overcoming remains. So maybe there is a fairy tale ending here after all. That's really something, I think. He's not done with the Laodiceans yet. He hasn't given up. He's come with stinging words of rebuke, but he's not given up on them. In fact, he's promising all that put their faith, all who put their faith in him, will overcome with him. Christian, you are an overcomer in Christ. Not as, not as a result of any of your works, not anything that you've done, not anything that you've earned, but only as a result of his victory on the cross. That's why John writes in 1 John chapter 5, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? These rewards of, of intimacy with Christ, overcoming in Him today and forever, reigning with Him on His throne, eternal throne, these are exclusive to those who have cast off. They've cast off who they were. And even turned their back, even turned their back on who they were and are putting their full faith and trust in Christ's death and resurrection. With our remaining time, I just want to offer two points of application. Um, you know, I don't have my act together quite like some of the other pastors and know what my points of application are going to be um, by uh, Thursday. That's right. By Thursday uh, uh, morning when I'm, uh, this is due. And so um, I put it off as long as I could. Shay texted me Friday, hey, man, I need your outline. So I still didn't have it by then. But here are my two points. The first is this, family love includes loving confrontation. That's the first one. And the second one is this, build wealth with God. Let's talk about family love first. If you couldn't tell, I was really taken. I was really surprised by the word love in verse 19 being brotherly love as opposed to agape love. That really surprised me. And especially in the context of such a strong witness against the Laodiceans. And yet there it is, brotherly love. Jesus' rebuke and counsel came in the context of family relationship. Now what might we learn from that? I think it means, I think it means that we are supposed to gently, lovingly confront one another when we see obvious sin. See, here's the thing. We all have blind spots. We all have blind spots. Now I might pat myself on the back for admitting I'm not good at administrative stuff, that's not a blind spot. That's like going into an interview and saying, well, one of my weaknesses, I'm a perfectionist. Like, that's not a blind spot. The essence of a blind spot is that you don't even know it's there. You don't even know it's there. These Laodiceans didn't even really know they were, you know, self-sufficient, indifferent to the things of God. They thought they were okay. Jesus said they were blind, and he pointed out to them their blindness. But sure, and so we all have these, these blind spots. Our brothers and sisters can help us see these blind spots. Home groups are a great place to find relationship with other believers. You can build into one another. But I would also suggest this. Another way is through believing friends. 
If you don't have somebody in your life that you've given the authority, authority is probably not the right word, the ability, the um, permission, that's the right word, the permission to speak into your life, I want to give you, you need to do that, I think, and I want to give you two practical things to, to do that. First, ask God, start praying, ask God, God, please bring somebody into my life that I can trust enough, who's not going to just try to hurt me, I can trust enough that I can, that will help me. You know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So start, start praying. And then number two, you need to actively seek out those relationships, okay, and opportunities. And it starts by giving permission. I think David, I think David uh, says it well in Psalm 141.5. This is a noble thing to pursue. He says this, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. So that's the first, I think, is, is this idea of loving confrontation in the context of, of our family relationship. The second is this. We need to build wealth with God. It's hard not to look at this text and avoid talking about money, I think. But Jesus didn't, talk, didn't avoid talking about money. He talked about it a lot, actually, so I don't think we should avoid it either. The Laodiceans have become wealthy and said, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. But as we've heard already, Jesus said, you have deceived yourselves. You're completely bankrupt in that which matters most. And this warning is for all of us as well. Many seek money. Many of us seek money as a defense against uncertainty. And there's some wisdom to that. I'll just give you an extreme example. A man might say, God is telling me to give away everything I have. And, then the ne- and he does so, and then the next day he cannot feed his own family. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what we're called to. But most of us go beyond good stewardship, okay, into placing too much trust and hope in our resources. Too often we go to our resources as a, as a place for security. And that's true whether those resources exist today. I know there's some here in this, this room that are retired and you know, Lord willing, you have more than enough to see you through the rest of this earthly life. Or whether it's for the most people in this room who hope those ex- uh, resources will exist in the future. Whether the, either of those cases, putting our hope in money is a fool's game. Chuck Swindoll relates a story that drives the point home. A woman in West Palm Beach, Florida, died alone at the age of 71. The coroner's report was tragic. Cause of death malnutrition. The dear old lady wasted away to 50, five zero pounds. Investigators who found her said the place where she lived was a veritable pig pen, the biggest mess you can imagine. One seasoned inspector declared he'd never seen a residence in greater disarray. The woman had begged food at her neighbor's back doors and gotten clothes she had from the Salvation Army. From all outward appearances, she was a penniless uh, recluse, a pitiful and forgotten widow. But such was actually not the case. Amid the jumble of her unclean, disheveled belongings, two keys were found, which led the officials to safe deposit boxes at two different local banks. What they found was absolutely unbelievable. The first contained over 700 AT&T stock certificates, plus hundreds of other valuable certificates, bonds, and solid financial securities, not to mention a stack of cash amounting to nearly 200000 The second box had no certificates, only more money, Lots of it, $600,000 to be exact. Adding the net worth of both boxes, they found that the woman had in her possession 
well over a million dollars. And might I add, this story is from 1981. When you convert that to today's dollars, that's $3 million. And these two safe deposits. And yet, she was begging door to door for food and died of malnutrition. I can only guess that she was putting her trust and hope and identity in this money. Don't be like this poor soul. Money's a tool. It's neither good nor bad. But don't be like this poor soul. The reality is if we put our trust in our money and resources, we may have... We may have all we need for this life, for right now. We may even have a lot of comfort and pleasure, but we will die without having fulfilled our greatest need. And that is to find life, both for today and for eternity, in Christ. We will die an eternal death of spiritual malnutrition when we don't continually put our trust in Christ. Instead, we can be wealthy where it matters most, and that's with God. I think in a passage that I know is familiar to many of us, Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Jesus says this on the Sermon of the Mount, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In the end, there is only one cure for all these things, and that is the cross of Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection are the answer to life. It's the beginning, middle, and end of the story. While we satisfy ourselves on wealth we've accumulated or hope to accumulate, we'll miss the rich blessing of life today with him, and we will be at risk of him spitting us out of his mouth. We will be useless to him. Instead, I invite uh, those of us who have found our identity in Christ already to reignite the fire. Turn aside and repent of the other things in your life, wealth, comfort, hobbies, work, family, whatever it might be. Whatever identity that might be trying to crowd out who you really are, which is this, a blood-bought saint of Jesus, loved by the Father, worthy of discipline and delight. This is who you are. Ignite the fire and live a zealous life of intimacy with Jesus. And for those who have never fully repented, and trusted in Christ. Might I suggest you've not become who God made you to be. You are not who God made you to be yet. C.S. Lewis wrote to a friend about another person who rejected Christ. He says this, Poor fool. He thought his mind was his own. It's never his own until he makes it Christ's. Up till then, it's merely a result of heredity, environment, and the state of his digestion. And then he closes with this thought, I became my own when I gave myself to another. He is inviting you to give yourself to him and to find real life, and life more abundantly. He stands at the door and knocks. Invite him in and find life. Please stand with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the life that you offer to us in Jesus. We thank you that you love us enough, that you delight in us enough to discipline us when we need it. Lord, protect us, especially in such a wealthy place like the United States and a wealthy place like Littleton, Colorado. Protect us from indifference. Lord, awaken our hearts today, even right now, if we've grown cold or indifferent to the things of you. Lord, we want to be useful 
to you. We want to be useful to you and to your kingdom. Lord, grant us this. Grant us your power. Grant us the trust in Jesus that we might overcome in him. And someday, look forward to reign with him. We ask all these things in his mighty name. Amen. You are dismissed.